welcome to What Goes Around podcast. My name's Anne Frankenstein. And I'm Eamon Murta. And guess what? We're back for series two. We've got so many excellent features and interviews lined up for you. We just can't wait to get them all out. And we are going to start the show off just by reveling in the joy of being back inside your ears. So you probably think that we've been having a nice break, sitting back, resting on our laurels over the past couple of months while the podcast has been on hiatus. Not so. We've been working hard, well, more like funning hard, compiling interviews for you with some incredible guests, putting together some brilliant features. In fact, we've had to put our New Year's resolutions for 2021 on the back burner until now. We'll be talking about that shortly here on the podcast. And I will be uttering words that I never thought I would ever say in my musical life. The words, I am Team Britney, as we discuss the amazing Britney Spears documentary currently doing the rounds and how her dad has got her in a legal headlock called a conservatorship. We'll also be delving into the colourful world of Japanese jazz with their resident expert, Tony Higgins. And our special guest is Twitter's finest, Squitty Politi's keyboard player and all-round wit and bon viveur, Mr. Rodri Marsden. Yes, Rodri's going to come in and tell us all about the music that changed him, the music that saved him. And what it's like to be trapped in a van on the road with people who don't have the same music taste as you. It goes deep. Shall we pod, Eamon? I think we should pod really hard because it's the first of the new series. (laughs) Let's let's, let's pod! Let's pod! I'm podding, I'm podding! Eamon, Murder, we're back. The podcast is back. We've had a little break. I've missed you terribly. Please tell me what goes around. All that goes around in my world is the fact that we are going round once more. And isn't that nice to be on the merry-go-round of music, loving every moment of it. It's so nice to be back. I have missed doing our little sessions. I've missed your dulcet Irish tones. You could you could have listened to my radio show if you missed them that much. No one's got that much time. <laughs> <laughs> or inclination, more importantly. Nah. Well, you're on every day now, aren't you? Pretty much Relent- every day. Relentless. Yeah. Some, sometimes I'm on. Sometimes I'm on on several different platforms all at once. Well, anyway, now you're on another platform, and it's your own. And it's our special little home. It's good. It's to very be home. nice to be back. Yeah. yeah. How have you spent the past couple of months not podcasting? How have you occupied your your time? Well, no. Initially, it was quite a relief because it's quite a lot of work, you know. But, but, the, Tell but us then, how you I, really you know, feel. Yeah, well, you know, at the start, I was like, oh, I haven't got to do anything this week. This is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but then after a couple of weeks, it's like, oh, I haven't got anything to do. I'm in lockdown. <laughs> this is terrible. I need to do something. Yeah. But now here we come back. So uh, in a way, you know, we kind of we we launched pretty much for lockdown mm. because uh, because we realized everyone was going to have a lot of time on their hands and um, we could we could probably help pass that time both for them and us, I would say. Um, and now here we are a year later starting series two and now there's a light at the end of the tunnel and I'm hoping it's not some bastard with a flashlight bringing us more work it could be the dawning of a new era we might be on the cusp of the new roaring 20s what do you say I have a whole load of lipstick and fucking makeup and tights and just 
fancy clothes that aren't even that fancy. They're just not tracksuits that I'm just <laughs> picturing myself one day being able to wear out of the house again. It's just I, I'm definitely excited about that. At the moment, I leave my house properly twice a month to go and do a continuity shift at the BBC. And I put the fucking most mental outfits on. I cake my face and even though I'm going to a place where nobody can see me, I cake myself in makeup and I just I put new sneakers on and I go all out. So I feel like once things are quote unquote back to normal, I'm just going to be I'm going to be making the most of every day, Abe, and I'm going to be dressing up and strutting my stuff. I'm just the same. I've got a, a, a huge amount of fancy clothes and glittering makeup that I want to wear. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bite my style now. Jan Frankenstein, now you're back in the saddle. Tell us what is going around. <laughs> well, I know um, New Year's feels kind of distant, distant now, although oh, time is elastic. Who knows what day it is or what month it is anymore? And also, like, isn't it naive how we were all looking forward to 2020 ending and then 2021 is just like... (laughs) This is going to be great the next day. Oh, everything's still shut and life is shit. This is exactly the same. Um, But but I did, you know, I contemplated New Year's resolutions when when the clock changed over into 2021, as I always do every year. And I thought... What, what is important to me? What do I actually want to achieve with my life? What would I like to get out of 2021, particularly as I find myself still at home a lot with a lot of time on my hands? And, you know, many years ago, and I know this is the same for you, um, I used to sing a lot. In fact, when I was in school, um, I trained for a while to, I, I really wanted to be an opera singer and I did the, the classical training and all of that. And I was wow. continually singing um, through school and trying to be in bands and all of that kind of stuff. And um, that's just sort of faded away. I think I had an odd experience a few years ago, which I've told you about before, where I played, I sang um, with a band called the Gene Dudley Group, great band. Um, uh, mainly made up of, of musicians who were playing on the live circuit a lot and I wasn't and so we embarked one summer on this series of festival performances all the big ones Green Man, Boomtown, all of these festivals and um, we never rehearsed so I just was going out <laughs> on stage <laughs> totally green terrified for my Yikes. life Eamon. Yeah that, no, that, is scary. that is scary in front of these you know festival and I'm not talking about festival crowds I mean it would these would have been we did open a stage at Green Man there were various levels of crowds and enthusiasm but I just couldn't get myself together to to really sing as competently as I would have wanted to and I just by the end of it I was just having a having a tiny breakdown Mm. um and uh, it just kind of put me off singing a bit and now I have this weird relationship with it and I thought it would mean a lot to me to get back into singing in 2021 yeah I think one of the hardest things I was in a band uh, a long time ago Mm. and we did really well and then for various um slightly upsetting reasons uh it had to end and one of my biggest regrets of my life is that I didn't just jump straight into doing mm. another thing because uh, I think oh, it's a bit precious about it and I wanted to make sure it was a good thing, whatever mm. I did. But actually, do you know what? To dare is to do. And if you're not doing something, if you're not making the work, 
then time suddenly runs past you yeah, and it's right. been a year it's been two years oh my god how do i even get back into it so, yeah it's been five years since Jesus. that festival experience well, get your shit together time. franco i know I'm, I'm try- <laughs> but the, you know the other thing is and you'll probably relate to this too is when you primarily are a dj you mm. spend a lot of time not necessarily critiquing other people's work, but you pick up a bunch of records in a record store, you set them down next to the decks, you're like, you drop the needle down in a few places, you're like, no, 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 yeah. Mm. And when you're, when you have that sort of binary critical mindset when it comes to music, I think that affects you when you sit down to try and make something of your own. And so I'm kind of crippled by that a little bit. But you're, you, you've, you've gone back to making music quite recently. Our theme tune is a is a DJA Ops original. <laughs> that is with my good friends Alex Hare and Peter Mayton. Uh, we used to be in a band called Black Ops Science Department and that track is called Jazz Mag. Maybe we'll, we'll reissue it in some way. But uh, you yeah, no, I think it's really it's really important to, especially w- with creative endeavours, just to get on and do it. Sometimes I think the problem is that you're, you're too aware that you're going to put it in front of people mm. eventually. And that can make you very slow because you want things to be right, especially if you've done something, maybe not had a good experience or indeed had a fantastic experience and want to match that. And so you you worry about the end product without enjoying the journey. And, and really, the best thing about any art is losing yourself in the motion of making stuff. Just make the stuff, do the singing, write the song, whatever it might be. And if at the end of it, you don't like it, make another one worrying about how it's going to end up will hold you back so just do it and just do it. pick up that guitar give it a strum all right <laughs> I was going to check if you'd fallen over there. I thought that was a nice natural end to the uh, I thought she's piece. gone. <laughs> <laughs> And murder, what goes around? Well, it wouldn't really be what goes around if I didn't bang on about a music documentary I'd recently watched. Like that was the most important thing that people need to know about. No, I've missed this. I don't know uh, what to watch without your guidance, except that you well, tweet about it. Well, <laughs> Thank got, goodness I, for that. Well, a lot of people are talking about this one. I recently watched the music documentary Framing Britney Spears. Have you seen it? I saw it. Yes, I have seen Jeez. it. Jeez. Mouth oh, open. Oh, my God. Moments all the way through. Mm. I was just, um, for those that don't know, you know, Britney Spears, God bless her, oops, she did it again, Toxic, which I still maintain is one of the finest pop songs of the last 20, 30 years. They started playing it on Sixth Music. Have they? They have. That's, that's not absolute... a marker of a modern pop classic. I don't know what it is. You know, I mean, the, I mean, the, there's lots of other stuff she did which just doesn't appeal to me at all. But that that is a proper, I'm going to use that word, it's a banger and mm. it's, it's a bona fide one. Anyway, she's she has done... A lot of great pop music and obviously was hugely successful. Almost hard to remember how successful she was straight off the bat. You know, Oops, I Did It Again was pretty much the first proper single she put out. And it was huge. And it's still huge. It still gets played like three or four times a week on most national radio stations. So, it's, you know, it's a, it's a big thing. But following all of that, she ended up in a situation which is quite unbelievable. All sorts of, you know, it's personal issues that happened. And, you know, she made the mistake, essentially, of at one stage cutting off all her hair, which was 
basically translated through the media as like, oh, this woman's mad. Mm. She can't look after herself. She's lost the plot. Well, maybe, but uh, she was also taking control because she was saying, you're not going to use me, you know, uh, like some pawn in your game. Uh, as this glamorous little baby doll. You know, I've got the power too. If I shave my head off, then, you know, hey, who's in charge now? Mm. And she was being absolutely hounded to bits by the press. As you see in the documentary, she was just... And they have a paparazzi guy who's just like, we were pals. I was just trying to find out if she was okay, really by following her in the middle of the night, like (laughs) all over LA. The disconnect of that guy. There's one point where they actually ask and they say... um, did she did she ever tell you to go away? She said, no, no, we see her every day. He goes, what about this bit of footage where she says, please go away, leave me alone? <laughs> oh, maybe maybe she meant for an hour or so. She, she, what about this yeah. bit of footage? <laughs> what about, you know, Unreal. it's just, you know, and then five minutes later, he's saying, uh, oh, and, uh, you know, we really want to help her. And so I followed her into this gas station <laughs> and took pictures of her while she smashed the shit out of my car with an umbrella. <sighs> Mate, that is not how you help people. <laughs> But it was crazy. And I think we all, as the public, have a little bit of the the guilt involved with all this, I think. Because looking back on how she was depicted and how people lapped it up and, and were more than happy to put her in a box straight away. You know, there were there were some really tough times for her when she split up with Justin Timberlake. He, you know, he goes and writes a song. And it makes a video which almost, you know, blatantly blames her for everything mm. and kind of frames her as this terrible slut woman who did did wrong by the ex-Mickey Mouse guy, <laughs> you know. And I'm not sure I even buy that. But even if it did happen, don't make it so explicit where you hire well. a Britney Spears lookalike <laughs> to appear in the background of your video. But this was all part of the, I mean, during that era, we're talking about the, the early 2000s when the tabloid press was just absolutely fucking rabid. And whoever was managing these pop groups obviously recognized that that was a way to keep the public talking about whatever artist you were looking after and so things like Justin releasing that track with that video with that Britney lookalike I'm sure was just part of the whole pantomime of uh, you know trying to trying to keep the sort of PR line going about mm. Britney and Justin and, and all the rest of it I just just watching it brought back a lot of memories of how I felt about that music at the time I wasn't adverse to pop music I think I I was like maybe 14 or 15 um, when uh, when Britney first came on the scene very much watching MTV a lot and um, into pop music I have Justin Timberlake rock your body on 12 inch I was uh, I, I wasn't adverse to it but I thought Britney Spears not and this is not about what she represented or anything like that I just thought her music was absolute bomb her voice irritated me it was very Mm. obvious to me that she'd been told to sing in a certain way, move her mouth and lips in a certain way to make her seem more alluring. The horrible sort of disgusting, misogynistic way that she'd been set up as this slutty virgin, you know, yeah, and sort I of... Mean, be- the whole schoolgirl video thing was oh, just It was just weird. absolutely... It was sickening. And I was a schoolgirl at the time and I recognised that it was so wrong. Mm. And I just hated the way she'd been set up between these two poles, you know, sort of like this this kind of uh, virginal um, pop princess who was also then posing on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine in her pants and I just felt all manipulated to me and even though Toxic was a good song I just had no time for her yeah no I I think artistically I'm I'm totally behind you with the Mm. exception of Toxic which is a great song but um she became such an icon that 
she no longer appeared to be any form of a human being. Mm. And there's a mm. point in the documentary where they show a clip from the American game show Jeopardy. It's a bit like Family Fortunes. We have, you know, you have to guess what most people would say uh, when asked the question, <laughs> what did, I think the question was, what did Britney lose this year? Mm. And the answers were things like, you know, um, her hair, her mind, her, you know, and it's just, it was so, oh, I don't know, it... I, I guess at the time it must have seemed funny, but looking back at it now, it seems really vindictive and nasty. Mm. And the real kernel, the really core of, of awfulness in the middle of this documentary is about how after she'd had, you know, these terrible problems, uh, you know, trying to get access to her children and um, various scrapes about how hard she was being worked and all this sort of stuff, mm. somehow um, her father and a lawyer managed to get this court order over her which is normally used for old people who have dementia and it's it's i think it's called a conservatorship in mm. in america and it basically means you take over their affairs their financial affairs and all that sort of stuff to make sure that you know they they still got a house and they're paying the bills and all that kind of stuff but let's say it's normally for old people who who lose their minds or people who are mentally incapacitated in one way or another the weird thing about the britney experience is that they got this and they've, they've actually still got it. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to get, Brittany and her team are trying to get out of it at the moment. But they've got complete control over her business affairs, her money, uh, what, she, what contracts she signs, where mm. she plays, what she does, all of those things. And they've been making her do sell-out performances in Las Vegas, tours here and there. Basically, this woman is working. And she has continued to work all the way through and working really hard and showing she does not look like someone who is not capable of looking after their affairs. Mm. Do you know what I mean? If mm. she can put on a show in Las Vegas every night, six nights a week with complicated dance routines and be convivial and, and charming to the audience and remember all these lyrics and do all these things and come up with all the ideas because she seemed very much more proactive in in her presentation than I expected her to be. How could she possibly be unfit to, to run her own life? It's a very extreme, whatever it is that was going on with her psychologically. And obviously she, she was having, you know, I think she had a couple of breakdowns, understandably, given the way mm. her career was managed and given everything that she had gone through in her personal life and with her career over the, well, for the entire length of her career, really. But it seems like such an extreme response. I think it's something to do with, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a some kind of compromise that she made to get access to her kids who yeah. for some reason were, were taken away but the weird thing is as well it's like the, the conservatorship is managed by her dad who she didn't seem to have any kind of a relationship with before he stepped in and, and took over it's all very sinister the other side of it is there's this whole movement going on with her fans, this whole hashtag free Britney movement where there's a group of fans now who are very involved with like trying to, with, well, with the whole legal business of her trying to um, free herself of this, of this um, legal contract or legal situation that she's in. But that just struck me as really weird as well, because that seems very invasive to me. You know, these people who are fucking <laughs> nitpicking over every aspect of her personal life, analyzing every Instagram post. I mean, yeah, like, surely that's just as bad. 
those guys who um, basically just, they kind of say it like it's a really chummy, nice thing to do. But they said, so what, we thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we just had a podcast that went out twice a week where we just overanalyzed all of Britney's Instagram posts? Yeah. I mean, um, would that be a good idea? I don't really know. <laughs> Is, would she appreciate that, given and everything then, she's been through? Yeah, and then it gets down to the stage of like, oh, oh she uses an emoticon there and not an emoji. Well, Britney always uses emoji. This is obviously a plea for help. Or it's a message sent by the father or the management team. I don't know. So all of that is weird. And again, it, it goes back to that whole thing of like, somewhere along the line, we lost track. Mm. Us as a public, we lost track of the fact that she was a person, mm. a human mm. being. And she just became this plastic doll, basically, mm. that we were all allowed to play with to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I suppose in the end, you know, it's those those supposedly crazy fans or crazed fans, they're the ones that are really finally helping to get her out of this because they they are they've brought it to the to the public attention. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have just kind of forgotten about Britney. She's something from a decade ago, and they, they they've kind of filed her in you know where, wherever you file the old pop stars in your mind, <laughs> and then they find out that this person still still. 10 years later, isn't in charge of her own affairs mm. and yet is still being worked like a fucking pit pony. Mm. It's, I mean, I just think it's unbelievable. And I'm, I, I never thought I'd say this in my entire life, but I am team free Britney. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Music is indeed a beautiful flower and one that can take root in the most unlikely of places. When the gardeners of Groove sow their symphonic seeds of syncopation, there's no telling where the fickle winds of fate will find fertile foundation. Sometimes, however, a genre can germinate in the Garden of Delight far from the allotment of expectation. So in this feature, we're going to find out why sowing the seeds of love and simply letting them blow on the wind can lead to an unexpected oasis of opportunity almost anywhere in the world. This week, we look around the world and wonder why jazz has blossomed in Japan with J-Jazz curator Tony Higgins. Tony, alongside his partner Mike Pedden, has spent the last few years bringing the eclectic world of Japanese jazz to the West with their incredible J-Jazz compilations on BBE Records. We are delighted to talk to Tony about this elusive and enticing scene that remained hidden for so many years. Tony, thank you for talking to us today. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I couldn't help it. Once I listened to these albums, they're they're fantastic. How did you first find your way into Japanese jazz? Really, I I got into jazz through um, my initial interest in in funk, black and hip hop and black music in the eighties. I started to come across, you know, uh, Japanese jazz sort of jazz fusion records. Most of the really good records never left Japan, and I was always wondered why. So many of these records never made it out of Japan. You know, why such great musicians were not known outside of a very small handful of people. And the more you looked into it, the more intoxicating and seductive it became, you know, as a collector of records, um, but a lover of music primarily. um, There is something about the thrill of the chase, finding, discovering music that has been hidden for so long. Mm -hmm. So the compilations kind of serve as a kind of gateway drug. 
I know jazz is really big in Japan generally. I've only been there once, but I noticed that a lot of the record stores seem to sell exclusively jazz and a lot of it. But obviously we're, we're talking about um, jazz that is made in Japan. I mean, are there distinctive features that, that you would say are the kind of the calling card of, of Japanese jazz? I have noticed over the years that the Japanese musicians play at an extremely high level of of, of technical ability. Mm-hmm. I mean, very, very high, very studied, very meticulous. There's something about Japanese jazz musicians which makes them stand out, to my mind anyway, and that is that particularly rhythm players, bass players, drummers and pianists, certainly from the golden period that I call from the mid-60s to the mid-80s, which is the sort of main arc of the, of the compilations, those musicians can play across every single style of jazz. They'll play standards, they'll play ballads, they'll play straight ahead, they'll play bebop, hard bop, post bop, they'll play modal, spiritual, free improvisation, funk, fusion, and they'll play it all very, very well. And that's quite an interesting characteristic. jazz uh, specifically took hold in Japan? Jazz arrived in Japan much like the rest of the world in the years immediately following World War One. But don't forget that if you go back to the mid to late 19th century, Japan up until the um, 1860s, 1870s had been in 250 years of self-imposed isolation. When they came out of that isolation in the late 19th century, they modernised extremely fast. Within 10 to 20 years, they had uh, newspapers and phone systems and tramways, etc. The culture of Japan saw modernity, and by modernity I mean westernization, as the hallmark of of how a country should be. So when jazz um, left the United States, it arrived at the perfect moment in Japan because for Japan, jazz was seen as the sort of music of modernity. Then 1945, after the war. Japan was occupied by the Allies, principally the Americans, and there were thousands and thousands of American service personnel stationed in Japan. That meant that there were huge numbers of American personnel who needed to be entertained. And many of the American personnel um, featured, uh, included amateur and professional jazz musicians. Japan, I think, saw jazz as a soundtrack, as a music of cooperation, Uh, of internationalism and a way, I think, to cleanse itself, I think, of the horrors that it had been through. Don't forget, jazz was actually quite specifically used by the US State Department as a a diplomatic tool to try and steer Germany and Japan away from militarism.
you've uh, obviously found some of these great records and brought them out. I mean, how big is this iceberg, do you think? I mean, how much how much is there out there to explore? Are you still finding new stuff yourself all the time or is, is it, are you, you know, reaching the, the sides of the pool, as it were? It's vast. I mean, it's you've got to remember the site in Japan has a population of what, 160 million people. It's, it's, it's a huge country, uh, cities are huge, and, and the musical culture, that the volume of music that's being produced there is, is, is extraordinary. And I think we're only just beginning to explore it, really. Japan seems to be one of the last places to be really explored, which is interesting given it's, you know, it's, it's, it's technologically modern and, and all of that. And it's, um, but there's something about it, I think, because it's very far away, the language barrier, all of these things have conspired to keep it relatively cut off. a little bit about uh, J-Jazz 3, uh, who's on it and, and why people should give it a listen. So J-Jazz 3, as the name implies, is the third volume in a, in, in a, in a series that myself and Mike Pedden have put together. We're trying to sort of open up the world of this music to, to a much broader audience. What we try and do is include across the compilation a range of styles. So on, on all the compilations, you're going to have um, something that's funky, something that's a bit more sort of um, calm and mellow, something that's uh, a bit more frenetic, freer maybe. But, but there's a coherence to it, I think, and a bit of a story and a narrative. So we've got some records on volume three, some tracks taken from private pressings. Mm-hmm. Private pressings are records that were put out, as, as I suggest, privately by individuals, not any, not any kind of record label. They may have pressed up 100 or 200 of these and sold them only at concerts. So finding those is a real thrill. And there's something for everyone, I like to think. <laughs> I have to agree. I've, I've listened to the album and it is, uh, it honestly, is one of the, my favourite releases of recent times. I really, really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for talking to us today and telling us all about the fascinating world of Japanese jazz. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Tony. Phonographic memories with us today is writer, musician, wit, and all-round bon viveur, Rodri Marsden. 
In addition to being one of the funniest people on Twitter, Rodri is a multi-instrumentalist with an amazing musical CV that includes playing keyboards for Squitty Politti, being Frank Sidebottom Sideman, and fronting Dream Themes, the UK's premier TV theme covers band. Oh, and Article 54, possibly the world's only Brexit-themed disco band. He's also recorded music for the Keatons, Micro Disney, the Free French and Gag. And as if all that wasn't enough, Rodri is an experienced journalist with several books to his name on subjects as diverse as A Very British Christmas, Crap First Dates and so on. He has turned his Twitter meme, Do They Know It's Christmas, into an annual event which raises thousands of pounds for charity. And we are so very pleased to welcome Rodri Marsden to What Goes Around. I, I sound great. I'd like to meet you. That's, that's what we do. We, as well, we build you up. It's up to other people yeah. to knock you down. I will, I will now spend the next half an hour or so just <laughs> demolishing that. <laughs> Please do. That's why we brought you here. Yeah. Thank you for being here, Rodri. We were just talking about your, your amazing disco uh, Brexit album, which came out. I mean, time has kind of lost all meaning. When did it actually come out? Two years ago? Oh, is it that long? Is it that long? <laughs> Was it? Oh, you tell me. <laughs> I think I think it came out. Yeah, October twenty nineteen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I, I yeah I started it. I started recording it over that over that summer, and really because this kind of terrible anxiety that I suffer from, you know, I just had to keep busy to avoid myself thinking too much about mm. stuff. And uh, I was yeah I was watching and reading so much about Brexit that I, I just had to kind of channel it into something that wasn't <laughs> that was just a bit more pleasant you know what I mean um, um, is that how you usually approach songwriting do you take quite a literal subject and then is it like a cathartic process for you to work through anxiety or was that just very specific to Brexit I have to say like I, I hadn't written songs for a long time like I, I, I you know I was in I was in a band kind of I was in my own band like about mm. 10 15 years ago where I was writing songs all the time and then I gave up because I just couldn't think of that the words were the problem you know I couldn't really mm. think of anything to write about and, and if I was moderately happy which I was at the time <laughs> the band ended I just had nothing to I had nothing to write about <laughs> so yeah and and then and then Brexit came along and suddenly I was really unhappy unhappy again so uh, this is so, what you yeah. need exactly, let's derail yeah. you everything will be really good you'll have a hit record everything's things There's that, come there. there was that thing that like Elvis Costello said didn't he about uh, you know he used to he used to uh, deliberately cause relationships to go sour in order for mm. him to have things to write about. But oh, I, I'm, too, I'm too nice to do that. So I just waited for Brexit and then wrote an album. <laughs> Hang on. Does this mean you're secretly delighted about Brexit? No, no, no let's not go too far. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was um, it was it was really nice to to produce something related to Brexit that was almost uniformly liked do you know what i mean i mm. i had like i had like one message i think from someone who's who who was furious with me for not respecting democracy and <laughs> wow. uh, but, Only it, one. Uh, but it just i mean it even got a, like a nice mention on the on the kind of the guido forks website and i was thinking wow. okay you know I, I mean i don't know whether i successfully trod the line between you know one thing or another do you know what i mean i i think mm. maybe i navigate i unwittingly navigated it very well and didn't make and didn't make put it you in I'm, charge I'm, of the negotiations really. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Could, could it would have been in a much better mood the pro-brexit people couldn't detect any irony in it do you think that's what happened oh ah, well maybe that's it <laughs> maybe that's it I mean, yeah, they're not, but, the smartest. Yeah. not music people maybe no exactly <laughs> 
we're, we're not saying anything, okay? You won, no. we got over it, leave it, leave it, don't write in. Listen, I got my Irish passport. So do you, Eamon, right? Yeah, that's right, mate. That's right. Rodri, uh, join I, us? I, no, sadly not, no. It's no. a shame. Yeah. The, um, and that, but then, of course, uh, lockdown happened um, in, well, of course, we're in another one now, but when mm. lockdown happened in March, I was getting messages from people saying, hey, you should do a COVID disco album. Oh, and, fun, um, fun, <laughs> Yeah. And, and of course, I didn't really want to do one because it was bound to be not as good or people wouldn't like it as much, you know, mm. and I know yeah. how these things go, but I did. And, uh, and it, and it, uh, and it didn't do as well. <laughs> well where can we access it? I, I, I want to hear this. Well, one place you can't hear it is article54.eu, <laughs> which, is a, which, as I was saying to you earlier, is a website that was taken away from me at, uh, at the 1st of January 2021. But it's called Staying Alive, it's called. It's oh, out there. Okay. Article 54, Staying Alive. Oh, we'll uh, have to seek that out. Yeah. yeah. Definitely, definitely. We'll stick some on the on the playlist after, yeah. after the uh, interview. Very good. Well, listen, um, we've asked you on here to share some of your phonographic memories, and I know you have had a long and distinguished career in and around music, so you must have... Well, long, a, anyway. Well, you said... <laughs> 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 Don't do yourself down. Well, no. Do what you like. But uh, listen, um, I've, I've certainly... Um, I've followed at least, or seen you at least three times in three different bands, so you must have done all right because I'm I'm pretty lazy. Okay. Go. <laughs> but yeah, I had no idea you were uh, in uh, you were in Frank Sidebottom's band for a long time, weren't you? Yeah, we we were kind of his uh, a group of us were like his kind of southern England band, if you know what I mean. Like mm. when he performed in Manchester, he had a different group of people, but when he came to London. We, uh, you know, he ne- he needed a, a few people to kind of sit behind him and be the butt of his jokes. So, yeah. but that was, um, that yeah, that was extraordinary working with him because you went on stage literally not knowing what was going to happen, and not uh, uh, from a musical sense either. You, you know, you hadn't had a rehearsal, you mm. know, and I and, and this, <laughs> the kind of person I am, that is like, what? No, you can't, <laughs> you can't do that. And it was always fine, you know, mm. and it, it taught me a lot about just not worrying so much about you know whether you, whether you've practiced or not because you know if you've got someone in front of you who's uh, who has enough gumption you yeah. know that they can they can they can guide you through it and out the tell, other side i'll tell you what though i went to see uh, you do a couple of those shows i'm sure it must have been you at the time i, I didn't know who you were then but also i imagining what it must be like to be one of the musicians the crowd were quite rowdy i remember yeah. There's a lot of like boisterous singing and kind of and all that. I was because I, I don't know I, I was a fey teenager at the time, and um, I think uh, I was expecting a nice jolly little comedy gig, and it was more akin to a football match at the start. I have to say, it was like, yeah. whoa, what's going on? A lot of call and response, a lot of in jokes. Mm. It's uh, a lot a bit blokey. <laughs> it was a bit, wasn't it? And I didn't, I didn't yeah. really expect that because you know we were listening to him do Kylie Minogue. I think your ace fly with me out into space and. Uh, guess he's been on match of the day and stuff i just thought it'd be a bit more um twee but yeah. <laughs> I, I think it, i think it got a bit more twee when we got involved i think well, that's good though. you're a good influence you see that's why yeah. i found this task that this phonographic memories task to be surprisingly mm. hard yeah um, i don't know if any any other of your guests have, have said that but like uh, you know as someone whose whole life revolves around music i imagine there would be like a whole bunch of specific songs that would be inextricably linked with kind of very strong memories, but they're really not, you know. And I, and, I, and I don't know why that is. I don't know whether it's because, you know, music is so omnipresent for me that it kind of smears itself 
liberally over a large expanses of time or whether it's just you know my horribly busy brain that doesn't sit still long enough do you know what I mean for things to <laughs> register as being firmly connected I and mean, of course songs do remind me of stuff but I don't know I must apologize in advance if my links are somewhat vague because they're not like oh you know this prefab sprout song reminds me of when my dog died or something like that <laughs> no well there's no there's no um there's no hard and fast rules it's funny because some people some people answer it as if they've been waiting to be asked this question their entire mm. lives and other people struggle. And myself and Eamon actually um, each gave a phonographic memory for our Christmas special uh, in a previous episode. And I find that really hard, like a combination of, yeah, something that's going to actually have a narrative story attached to it and also not be a crap song. <laughs> I mean, I see. I don't mind if it's a crap song. I think that's fine. I think you do mind, Damon. Come on. No, no, I really don't. But if if you were giving it yourself, you would mind. You wouldn't want something to be to be super crap and embarrassing. You also want to say something about who you are. Oh no, no. No. See, that's the whole reason for doing it. See, because I, when I was thinking up the idea for it, you know, because it's not Desert Island. It's it's not necessarily going to be this song changed my life and was wonderful. And a lot of people take it like that. Mm-hmm. But I'm more interested in the memory. I'm more interested in like, because when I, the reason I call it photographic memories is because I, like all through the 90s, for example, before camera phones, I was going out and doing all sorts of extraordinary things and having having my youth and all that. But there was hardly any photographs at all. Mm. No one, no, you know, very, very few people took photographs back then. And if they did, it took two weeks to send them away and they got stuck in a drawer and then they got lost and blah, blah, blah. And the way I remember those times is I pull out records and I think, oh, when I bought this, I was living at Castle Street and I was talking to him and blah, 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 you know. And so that that's how my brain works. And I, I've just been um, surprised that uh, not everyone is the same as me. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because my thing was when we came around to do it, and I, I don't know if you felt this as well, Rodri, was like, OK, I'm going to pick a song and now I'm going to have to think of how I'm going to backpedal and like justify it and validate it so it exactly. doesn't really embarrass me. Exactly. I mean, it, I mean, it's very it would be very easy to. To, to you know, to choose like a song by Nick Drake or the Velvet Underground or something, yeah. and then and then manufacture the memory after the fact, in, <laughs> you know, in, in in order to have that kind of yes, that Desert Island Discs quality yeah. to it. But mm-hmm. the, I, I must stress that these <laughs> these are not my Desert Island Discs. This, this in is any good. Way. That okay. you've got the brief right. You've understood what we we, want. we were just talking about this before you you joined us, Rodri. Not that there's any hard and fast rules, but we specifically were admiring your choices, so you have okay. nothing to worry about. Okay, great. <laughs> Well, listen, now, now, we've, now we've whetted the appetite of the listener. Perhaps you ought to uh, jump straight in and tell us what your first phonographic memory is. Right. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the first one is, is uh, it's a song called Desdemona, and it's by the kids from Fame. This is what um, we're talking about. <laughs> and the, and for, for the uninitiated, the, the kids from Fame was, I suppose, the 1982 equivalent of Glee, wasn't it? It was like mm. a it was a drama set in the New York School for Performing Arts, which doesn't exist, but, <laughs> there, but there you go. <laughs> Loads of singing and, um, and and prancing about. For, I mean, firstly, I have to say, I consider this song to be an absolute masterpiece. I, I don't think it was released as a single, and that's probably wise because it would surely have bombed but I adore everything about it the arrangement is glorious the song craft if I'm allowed to say such a thing is totally magnificent and and more broadly it's a it's an overblown disco tune about Othello so you know what's not to like about that also the the sequence on the tv show I remember watching it at the time um it's just a bunch of students dressed up in Elizabethan costume you know hurling themselves about and and I didn't realize it back then but of course it's also professional actors in a big budget production acting at being rubbish actors in a slightly (laughs) rubbish production. (laughs) 
In terms of like the memory, there's a couple of reasons why this is kind of uh, significant. Firstly, I got the kids from Fame album from which this is taken for my 11th mm. birthday. Mm. Um, and I also got the same day, October the 1st, um, I also got a ZX81 computer, which is like the um, ugly older brother of the ZX Spectrum with kind of crap black and white graphics and no sound. But that birthday was like absolutely astounding i don't think i've ever had two <laughs> better presents than that mm. ever and and like the zx81 basically kicked off a lifetime of being fascinated by computers and technology which ultimately led me to write about it for like the independent and subsequently the national in the middle east um and and the kids from fame just really made me want to play pop music you know mm. th there was a character in that show called bruno uh, bruno. Bruno yeah he was love a I love him yeah, he was a nice, quiet boy who played piano and, and synthesizers, you know, classically trained, but with ambitions towards making pop music. And you know, basically, I just wanted to be Bruno. Mm. And, and like, moreover, it, it didn't seem like too, too far-fetched an ambition for that to become true. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like I wanted to be David Bowie. Bruno was, you know, he was just a guy at music college having a great time working out pop music and making music happen. And that's kind of basically what I've ended up doing. Well, that, that, they, it was such a great show for that because I think there was loads of little archetypes in the show where everyone could pick someone to try and model themselves on. I overambitiously chose uh, Leroy. He was the he was the the glorious uh, body popping dancer, and I really wanted to be him. I never <laughs> I never reached those dizzy eyes. <laughs> That's the thing about Bruno. He like he wasn't the star. Do you know what I mean? He wasn't the lead singer. Mm. He didn't really enjoy the limelight, but he made other people's visions come to light. And I, I I'm not I, it's not a, I'm not trying to stretch this deliberately, but I've I've totally ended up like that. You know, I come across a thing and I think, oh, oh I'd really like to help that happen. Mm. And unfortunately, there are a bunch of people who've kind of recognised that in me, that I'm, you know, he's, he's capable, reliable and, and pliable. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Let's get him, in, him involved. So, yeah, the Desdemona, I mean, the, the, there's no bigger signpost in my life than, than, <laughs> than the things I got for my, that, from that birthday. I mean, I listen to that song now, apart from thinking, oh, God, what an amazing song. I can I can actually feel the kind of excitement at possibilities that lie ahead. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah, and so. how is that? Obviously, like you, you know, you've you've said yourself, you've kind of become that. Um, how does living the life that you're living now actually compare to what your fantasy was when you were watching <laughs> and you're listening? Are that you soundtrack? playing a synth on top of a New York cab? <laughs> well, you yeah. know, just in terms of how, because like. I just think it's really interesting when you speak to people who have had a dream since childhood and then that dream comes true for them and they're living it, you know, how does it, how does it compare and how does it feel? Well, there's a lot more admin involved. <laughs> always, that's just, yeah, being adults, there's always a lot more but, admin. I, I, you know, I mean, you say the dream. I mean, but, but, but as I said, you know, it was kind of a realistic dream. Do you know what I mean? It just mm. made me realise, you know, I kind of do want to go to music college and mm. uh, and I do want to play keyboards in bands and uh, and of course it's a complete delight and I'm complete and I'm and I'm very lucky to be, to be able to do that. Kids and Fame was really big, wasn't it? It was like a real because there was the there's the film which is uh, you know I think it's Alan Parker was it? Um and that I think that won an Oscar and then and then the spin-off TV show that was the biggest thing that was the highlight of the week as I remember it you know that and Top of the Pops were the two big musical happenings at the time. I think it was one of those odd things where it was much bigger in the UK than it was in the US. I think the UK went absolutely nuts for it for reasons that I, I, I'm not really sure 
But mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, yeah, it, it it felt huge. I'm sure I'm sure that Kids from Fame album was the number one album. Oh yeah, yeah, must have been, must have been. I I, I loved it. I watched it, it religiously every week, and I, I loved Doris, who wanted to be the the stand-up comedian, the little Jewish girl. And obviously the the dancing and all that. I just wish um, I I should have been more serious about uh, being Bruno, and then I could have I could be satisfied with life like you are. <laughs> it was, as as Roger has demonstrated, it totally attainable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I tell you one th- one thing. I just remember that it did mean was that I it meant that I would I'd be that person who would just hang out in music shops. <laughs> I would hang out in music shops near the keyboards and kind of ho- hoping that something would happen. Do you know what I mean? Because <laughs> that's exactly what would happen. If you, were, if you were in fame, you'd be in a music shop and then suddenly someone would s- strike up a beat and then everyone would join in. Everyone and this, join and, in, this, yeah. and this song would kind of <laughs> somehow emerge from nowhere. But I did find music shops for a long time. I felt them very, you know... I felt very at home there. Felt very mm. yeah. Always waiting for that gig to suddenly kick into life. Yeah, someone yeah. bursting through the door. We need a keyboard player for tonight. <laughs> playing in the Apollo. Can anyone yeah. even play keyboards? And what would actually happen was, you know, people they would start playing and there'd be massive arguments about musical direction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. So that's the difference then between the childhood fantasy and the adult reality. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> more admin and more arguments. That's right. Yeah. Plenty of them, plenty of both. Ooh. I think what's great about this particular track as well is, as you say, Desdemona. It's you know, it's a it's a classical retelling of of William Shakespeare's fine works, and uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, not many songs at the age of eleven, you know, are gonna are gonna take you at that age and and also educate you about the bard. So I don't think I had any idea what it was about until fairly recently. <laughs> to be honest, I've, I've never been very big on words. You know, I, I just I, I like the sound they make, but I never really think about what they mean. Ooh, this oh. is an interesting avenue because you're the second. We we spoke to um, Miles Chapman uh, a while back on this podcast for his phonographic memories, and he made the same sweeping statement that he just um, never listens to words. Lyrics uh, don't matter to him particularly at all, and it set me and Eamon off on this. Been clutching Long pearls ongoing debate. Yes, exactly. Uh, can you go deeper on that a little bit for us? Why? Surely, if you hear a song and the words are really embarrassing or awkward or you can't relate to them, that puts you off, or do you just not care at all? I, 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 I think it's basically. I think just the music takes centre stage in my head. I'm thinking about all. I'm thinking about the sound it's making rather than what it means. Mm. Um, I. I I don't know whether I can go any deeper than that, but it was it was <laughs> I was in a I was in a pub about a couple of years ago and I was chatting to some guy of kind of filmmaker there who was making a video for um, a scritty politi thing or a green guard side thing. And um, and he said uh, and he in, in reference to the song that he was making this video about, he said, so, uh, you know, so what so what do you think about the, the words of this song? And I said, well, I don't listen to the words of songs, really. I don't. <laughs> You know, I, I, don't, I, just don't, I just don't think about them. And he got really, he got really cross. He got <laughs> really cross at me, and he, en- he ended up grabbing my beard. At the, at, 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 I know, and it, and it all kicked, it all kicked off. And I, and I ended up storming out of the pub and went home. I was like, I'm not going to put up with that. Really? So I, I don't know where, I don't know where the, the guy was. Uh, Typical, typical of the strength of feeling about, on, on this subject. No, no, Roger, we're mildly incredulous, but we're not going to grab your beard, yeah. I promise. Yeah, <laughs> only in an affectionate way yeah. would we ever grab your beard. Maybe a tickle under the chin, yeah. but we're, yeah. we're not beard-grabbing yeah. types. Um, I myself have a glorious beard, but I don't want it pulled by anyone. Yeah. Um, wow, I just find that so so interesting. So there's no track that you've ever heard that's resonated with you for for the words as opposed to 
the music? Well, I mean, no, no, no. I mean, I, I don't think good words could save a bad song, if you know mm, what I mean. Mm. Right. But I mean, there's certainly. I mean, I've certainly reveled in. You know, I mean, I love. I used to love the fall when I was a kind of teenager and in my early twenties, and I would and I would I would love. I would love, you know, Marky e. Smith's lyrics and, and 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 ponder what on earth they could mean, but just just marvel at kind of the audaciousness of them. And of course, you know, I I I kind of delighted in in Smith's lyrics back in the day as well. Mm. But it but yeah uh, it, yeah exception rather than the rule. That's fascinating. I I want to grill you about this all day, but I don't want to grab your beard. (laughs) Hey, have a little tug. (laughs) Well, if you insist. Um, Your next track, though, um, has no words. And I'm so glad you picked this one because it's a piece of music uh, written by the legendary library music dude, Keith Mansfield. Yeah. You've picked the grandstand theme. Talk to us about this one. Yeah, it's... Yeah, there are so many unsung heroes out there of, of, of TV themes. Keith Mansfield, one of them. You know, Alan Hawkshaw, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Johnny Pearson. There's, there's loads. And, and uh, because I play in a TV theme tribute band, you know, I've spent about ten years trying to work out why TV themes of that era are so evocative. You know, mm. and why, <clears throat> you know, in normal times, the, the, our band is able to cram two hundred people into a venue who will then proceed to lose their shit to very loud versions of Grange Hill and, and the 18. Um, it's, yeah, it's an odd one. I mean, for me, this this tune, Grandstand, is, you know, it's instantly midday on a, on a Saturday during my childhood. Mm. You know, the Saturday morning kids' TV shows were, were done and it was time for sport. And while I, you know, while I was evidently, <laughs> I evidently wasn't going to settle down for an afternoon of watching kind of horse racing from Haydock Park, you know, I, I was eight, you know, it did signify the beginning of Saturday afternoon, right, which was generally a fun time because there wasn't any school and there wasn't any homework either because I'd leave that until Sunday. So, again, like this tune just is like a signifier of, I don't know, joy and freedom or something, although I'm in danger of sounding ridiculous when I say that. But, uh, yeah, it's a, a completely uplift. I'm thinking, yes, it's Saturday <laughs> afternoon. <laughs> And I'm saying, um, you know, obviously I, I grew up in the same era, so I, I, I can feel the same things that you you must have been feeling at the time. And and it it was a kind of uh, it was a, it was a signal that that you you had Saturday in front of you. You know, you, you could go and and do what you liked now, whatever it might be, whilst someone watched um, watched the racing from Haydock. Um, yeah, listening to it today is interesting because I I, I I put it on YouTube and um, I was having a little listen. And of course, it stops, or someone starts talking over it halfway through when it's on the TV. So yeah. you only get like the first 30, 40 seconds of it. There's a scorching guitar solo in the middle of it. It's absolutely <laughs> bonkers. Yeah. Yeah, the, the the hidden kind of middle sections of TV themes are, are, is a is an interesting is an interesting thing. I mean, we Dream Themes did a um, we did released a version of uh, News at Ten. 
<laughs> it, it was like 20, it's 20 seconds long. We, we thought the, the idea of putting out a single that was 20 seconds long, yeah. not quite. But it's taken from a much, much, it's taken from a seven-minute piece. No way. Called, called The Awakening. I mean, it's an, extra, it's an extraordinary piece of music. And, that, and that, the, the, the news at 10, the bongs, the mm. bit that we all kind of know, is just the very end of that seven minutes. Um, there's also, while I'm thinking about it, there's um, some mothers do have them. I don't know whether you... Uh, mm. you, you... <laughs> yeah, it's a little, little, flute, uh, little flute tune. <laughs> Get on YouTube and, and look for the full version of that. As soon as the flute tune is finished, which is the only bit that people know, it goes into this insane kind of jazz exploration, like a wow. full big band, and it kicks off. It's fantastic, absolutely wonderful. The one that, that um, uh, I sort of uh, I searched for it for years and years, not knowing what it was, Brian Waldron, who was like a, an investigative reporter in the 70s and 80s, he had a thing called Weekend World. Oh, and yeah. The theme music from Weekend World is called Nantucket Sleigh Ride by Mountain. And I, I'd, I'd, I'd searched, I'd sung it to people, and I, I'd been looking for years, and eventually someone said, oh, it's, it's, it's Mountain, check it out. And so I got the record. And I, it was so weird, because it's like, again, it's like 20 seconds in the middle of the song. It's not even yeah. like the first bit or the last bit. It's like, it's, it's like they've taken this brilliant bit of organ-driven funk prog. music that I absolutely <laughs> loved yeah. and they've just they put a massive prog sandwich either side of it do you know what I mean like yeah. two big crusts of of noodling yeah it, the, the song isn't all that is it, it but that no, I, I was really disappointed <laughs> I know yeah, me too <laughs> I need to get some sort of you know clued up disco DJ to give me an edit where it's just the middle bit over and over again you know TV themes were <laughs> the danger, dangerous sounding kind of elderly, but they were better back then. I mean, the most iconic TV themes from that era were kind of bits of library music, right? So they were written mm. for the sake of the music itself. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Just write a great tune, and then they sat in this library waiting to be discovered by people making telly shows. So there was no, uh, you know, there's no input from commissioning executives or, and people like that. Which obviously yeah. explains why the same music used to end up being used for different purposes. Like it's always <laughs> when the Channel Four news theme tune turns up in. Clint, Clint Eastwood's uh, Pale Rider. Hang on a minute. Do you think it's galling for library musicians? Because, like, obviously, uh, you know, most of them are very accomplished composers and musicians. Like you say, they make these pieces of music to sit in a library waiting to be discovered. But a lot of them are, like, extended pieces of music with, like, parts of which will just never be used on TV. They're just not, not kind of generic enough or not kind of, I don't know, passive enough to be used. Do you think it's galling for these library uh, music composers to know that like the blandest snippet of what they've made is is actually what's going to be used? That must be very frustrating for them, do you think? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're certainly not doing it for the glory, <laughs> are they? You know, Maybe they are in some respects, though. But then every time whoever is making the programme just, you know, picks the bit that was like, you know, not on their terms, the best bit of the piece of music they made. Yeah. Am I going I mean, too deep on get, this? I mean, it's it, it's interesting, isn't it? How, how, how much fantastic music there is made for television and film that is just not even recognised as proper, proper music mm. almost. And yet that stuff, you know, is is arguably more of a soundtrack to our lives than you know than than proper than proper music do you know what Absolutely. i mean i mean less so now because tv doesn't really bind the nation together does it in the same way mm. that it did when there were only four or five channels and there wasn't going to catch up tv and the internet and so on but 
Yeah, there, you're, you're, yeah, there are, as I said at the beginning, there are a lot of unsung heroes out there. Mm. But um, it's getting more, I mean, you know, you have all these compilations coming out now and, and um, you know, your band, which sounds incredible. Um, and, you know, um, people like Johnny Trunk, who are all about publicizing yeah. library music. But it's so true. It, it's it's um, TV themes are, are far more a part of the audible fabric of our lives than, than they get credit for. And it's funny you talk about racing at Haydock. My dad is a quote unquote professional gambler. So the grandstand theme signified for me the start of a very boring <laughs> afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wasn't it, it was only really when we because we started doing the dream themes band uh, because we were the, because we were Frank Sidebottom's backing band and, and you know and, and we needed to play music while he was doing the raffle or whatever <laughs> and so we decided to learn a couple of TV themes and it was just the, the kind of the reactions you know what I mean these instantly recognisable tunes which mean a lot perhaps without them realising it mm. mean mean a lot to many people because of those all all of those associated memories from childhood. And, um, you know, we started doing gigs, we were a bit rubbish, and, and then someone booked us to play their birthday party, at which point we decided we probably ought to get better. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and then, yeah, we ended up doing like festivals. We were on the Paul O'Grady show on ITV. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was suddenly, mm. yes, oh, God, there, uh, I've ended up in a band that people actually want to come and watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can introduce this, the free design. Tell us about your third oh, right. photographic memory. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. This is a, it's a bit of an odd one, really. It's it's, but the reason I chose it is it just because it just ties into a very specific time and place, which was um, which was being on a tour bus driving across the USA uh, with with Scritti Politti in mm. two thousand and six, and that was that's just like a, a very thrilling memory for for many reasons, like mm. through through a completely serendipitous chance meeting I'd ended up in this band that I'd loved since I was 13 years old and uh, Green the singer had, had recruited the members of this iteration of the band from his local pub in Dalston just people who he bumped into who he thought might be nice to hang out with do you know what I mean musical experience was very much secondary um, <clears throat> and and he hadn't played live since 1980 or something so we were all very much kind of in this thing together and, and because of the kind of big gap there was there was a huge amount of interest in seeing him play so yes, we we flew to the USA. I'd never been to the the states before, and we did our first gig supporting Brian Wilson in LA wow. on the 40th anniversary of Pet Sounds show, and it was completely mind blowing then, and even more mind blowing looking back on it. And we were, you know, we were a bit rabbits in headlights, but we were all right. We acquitted ourselves. Yeah. Um, but the uh, the uh, you know, I toured for years in kind of little bands around Europe in, in transit vans and stuff, but I'd never been to the States and, and didn't appreciate the huge distances you have to drive, you know, between <laughs> each show, which basically means you have a driver who drives you overnight in a bus while you sleep in these rather claustrophobic bunk beds. And and I remember this song just playing a lot during that tour. Our, our tour manager, I think her name was Deb? Deb played it and and we were all like oh all of us were like oh what's this this is fantastic and we kept wanting to listen to it <laughs> and it's just a really rare thing because one thing i've found over the years in banging in bands is it's really hard to find music that everyone in a band wants to listen to oh, at a certain yeah. point in time do you know what i mean these days when scritty tour we basically have a no music policy because it's bound to <laughs> it's bound to irritate <laughs> oh at, at, le at, at least one person in the vehicle <laughs> Hit, hit, 
I, I have this thing where, um, you know, when I think about the, the dream of being in a band and all that, and I've, I've known a few people in bands over the years, and um, one thing that no one quite gets a handle on in their in their in their vision of themselves being in a band is quite how long you spend cooped up in a tiny vehicle with like eight other people and that that yeah. like, especially if you're traveling across america where i imagine a large section would be either very hot or very cold and um that must have been quite a you know it's a test of endurance as well as enthusiasm i suppose yeah i mean i mean with with the with the scritty tour you know i mean there was a, there was a <laughs> there was a certain amount of money which at least enabled the, the, the tour bus to be kind of fairly comfortable but i've done you know i've 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 done my fair share of uh, month in unroad unroadworthy vehicles with uh, <laughs> in, in bands where everyone smokes except me. Oh, and, uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, you you you're in danger of prizing too many memories out of me. But I just remember. No, the, please, uh, please share. Well, no, 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 <laughs> no. It was just, it was just the, it was that thing about being in a smoky van. There's this, you know, when when money is tight, there's this whole thing about you know the the, the tour budget, you know. Like what, what? What the money that we receive for doing the gigs? You know, what what should it be spent on? And we had this phrase that was, "Is this part of the band?" You know, "Is this part of the band?" So, like, <laughs> i.e., could money be spent on this thing? And and cigarettes were deemed part of the band. Do you know what I mean? So, so like, cigarettes were were a thing that was bought out of out of tour funds. And I remember being kind of resentful about this because they were kind of expensive, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then all these, they were motoring through these fags, and uh, and then it was it was deemed at one point I could have an orange instead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's no, cruel. Rodri can have an orange. Okay. Start peeling slowly as you leave <laughs> London, and hopefully <Yeah. laughs> you'll have something nice to eat by Birmingham. Oh, yeah. The, the the thing about music in music in van, music on the road. You know, mm. I remember I remember what, when I was in my teens and playing in these kind of noisy shouty bands that John Peel liked but barely anyone else you know we would be in a transit van going to Middlesbrough or somewhere and we you, you, of course you'd want to listen to the kind of music that we were into you know the, the same kind of scratchy racket mm. that we played that sounded like The Fall or Wire or mm. whatever but you find out very quickly that those 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 records through crap sound systems in vans just really make your head hurt it's just like really yeah. really tiring I remember one particularly awful journey back from Newcastle or something where a, a, a dreadlocked driver friend of ours insisted on listening to swans for a whole journey not not the graceful bird we're talking the new york noise band you know pushed through these tiny speakers and everyone just felt so depressed uh, and eventually so eventually yeah we started listening to country music instead which was just like every we can just we can cope with this it's soothing it sounds nice yeah I, just, I, I love the idea, like what you're saying, that there was almost no democratic point that could be reached in terms of everyone agreeing on what music to listen to, because I, I think in, in any context, there's certain kinds of music that just make me absolutely furious. And if it was forced on me in a car for long periods of time, I think I'd, I'd lose my mind. Was country music the only kind of thing where, you know, everyone's mind sort of met and there were no arguments? Yeah, I, th I think we both, <laughs> I think we all had a kind of... Uh, a similar lack of interest in it. Do you know what I mean? And so, and, and so, it's like when you yeah. go to a restaurant and you, you end up ordering the blandest curry you can because <laughs> <laughs> half of you won't have any spices. Exactly. But it, yeah, I, I think it was just, yeah, something everyone can live with. And, ra rather than sit in complete silence, we'll, we'll just have Tammy Wynette, you know. Oh, that's so funny. I See, love that. In my band, I was the DJ. So I was a, the DJ oh. setup was part of the band. So obviously I took it as my God-given right to force everyone to listen to music. 
music. And that normally went okay, but there was a, a brief period where I really got into jungle and drum and bass. Mm. And um, unless you've got a bassy speaker, you know, it doesn't it doesn't translate. It may as well not exist. <laughs> it, I know. And literally, like after after a day or two of of trying to turn everyone on to drum and bass, they're just like, it just sounds like someone throwing a hamster into a pile of pots and pans. <laughs> just just turn it off. <laughs> Oh, God. I think um, I remember doing a few festivals. I think it was 2016 with this band that I was in. And we had to drive up to Wales to do that one that's on the side of a mountain. I can't remember what it's called. Green now. Man. Green Man. Yeah. Festivals are such a distant memory now. But um, the only like your your sort of uh, Tammy Wynette moment, the only sort of democratic point we could reach in terms of music was Paul Simon's Graceland. And oh, we just really? had that on repeat for that. I mean, I'm not complaining, but that was like the only the only one where we could all find a sort of, you know, common happiness. That's the worst song in the whole album. Anyway. <laughs> I agree. Um yeah, you saying remember festivals, it's strange, isn't it? It's so uh, weird. Would you would you have been playing it what's your sort of status now in terms of playing live music? Would you have been doing a load of festivals and, and gigs um, in 2020 had it not been we, for lockdown? The, we were, uh, uh, one of the bands I'm in is called Kenny Process Teams, like an mm. instrumental uh, quartet. And uh, we were due to play in a bed and breakfast in Western Supermare <laughs> the day mm. that, uh, the day that lockdown was announced in March. And, um, and so that was... Yeah, that was the last gig I didn't do, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and, and there was a... <clears throat> we were supposed to... Scrittability was supposed to be touring their most well-known album, Cupid and Psyche 85. We mm-hmm. were supposed to be doing that at the end of 2020, <clears throat> and that was all cancelled. So that's re- now rescheduled for um, October... Yeah, September, October this year. And, you know, I'm, ner- I'm nervously glancing at... Um, mm kind of schedules for vaccination and, and wondering kind of how realistic <laughs> yeah. that is um but uh, yes so at the moment i will i'm i'm due to be playing i'm due to be uh spending my 50th birthday playing a playing uh cuban psyche in brighton oh um, fingers crossed so that's, yeah although you know great. although too it bad it's not your 70th otherwise you'd be guaranteed that vaccine yeah. Maybe you can lie That's on the paperwork yeah. or something. You'd be first, first in the door. Yeah, yeah keyboard player in, gets one. <laughs> we're probably in the situation where Green will get a vaccination, but the rest of us won't, and we'll just have to take our chances. Oh, man, you can, yeah, do, do it in a bubble or something. But is that been, because obviously you have so many other strings to your bow and so much other stuff, uh, you know, presumably that you could be doing in terms of, you know, use of your time. Have you, have you missed gigging in 2020, or is it kind of be nice to have a rest? I, yeah, no, I mean, I yes, I've really missed it. You know, it's it's so it's so weird to mm. to just not be to just not be playing music in a small room. I mean, you know, scrittability aside, you know, I, I'm just in lots of little bands, and and we we we, you know, we play in back rooms of pubs, and it's one mm. of the one of the joys of of my life. You know, and mm. um, to not be able to do that is just you know, I occasionally look at a YouTube video of of of, a, of an old gig or something. I'm thinking, oh, well, that, that just looks weird now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it, and it's kind of hard to imagine how we'll kind of segue back into it without without it feeling a bit wrong. Yeah, I don't, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was I was I was trying to pull out some kind of silver lining there. I feel like I just yanked your beard. Sorry, <laughs> no, about no, that. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I know it's it's uh, yeah, it's very strange. It's it's strange imagining what gigs are going to look like <laughs> when yeah. things are quote unquote back to normal. 
I can almost imagine gigs because I can. I have enjoyed gigs sitting down. Do you know what I mean? I've enjoyed gigs in in a, in a restful repose mm. with a little bit of space around me. That I can get. But it, you know, DJ gigs, discotheques, all that sort of thing. They they don't work really if you're if you're not able to get up and shake your booty. Or the sweaty backroom gigs. Yeah, yeah, you need yeah. that. You know, oh, I do love a sweaty backroom oh, gig. I have too. to say. The other, the, I mean, the other thing about it is that it's the tiny gigs that, that I'm, I, I'm involved with, loads and loads of work kind of goes into making those happen. And there's something about, you know, expending enormous amounts of effort for, for what might seem like very little reward <laughs> that, I, that I really relish. Mm. Do you know what I mean? There's some, I've, I've always had this kind of thought that it's quite noble to spend kind of two months... Um, you know, planning a one-off a one-off gig, and you just do it once, and and then the people who were there enjoyed it. And do you know what I mean? Yeah. And and yeah. so it's not it's not just the gigs not happening; it's the kind of um, it it's the work towards them that I miss as well. The mm. uh, where yeah, where you, where you've expended all this effort, and then suddenly it it results in a thing. It's probably so, goes yeah. back to Bruno, doesn't it? You know, Bruno Martelli in his in his dad's uh, garage spending ages tweaking his little synthesizers and just for that moment when he gets to do high fidelity well exactly outside, outside the uh, the performing school of arts mm. and that ladies and gentlemen is the neatest roundup <laughs> you, will, you will ever hear i had more to say on, on that topic i'm gonna ruin it's, this it's whole so, thing it, it just reminds me of writing a feature and i'm stuck for i'm stuck, <laughs> stuck, for, stuck for how to how to end it and i just think i, I just look back to what how i began it and try and oh, perfect <laughs> little device the old call back it's a fail-safe mechanism Classic. i want to i want to loop back and yank on that same chain that i was yanking on no, a little while it, ago which is that like you know i want to go back to this because you say you've loved scritty politty since you were 13 mm. you know you you um you wanted to be bruno in the fame series you uh are writing about te- or you know you have had this career writing about technology ever since that um computer that you got for your 11th birthday do you not like, do you not feel some se- huge sense of validation that you're literally living your childhood dreams uh <laughs> <laughs> that's a horrible question but i want you to answer it <laughs> It's no, I, you know, validation. I don't. Uh, yeah, I, I think I feel just really lucky. Do you know what mm. I mean? I feel really lucky, and um, you know, and if, and you've obviously, you know, it's all tempered by the fact that you know, I have my mental health isn't great. Do you know what I mean? Mm. There's all kinds of bad, you know, stuff that's going on that is not that is not good that kind of balances out the, mm. <laughs> the other stuff. Do you know what I mean? But it's um, yeah, I'm you know, I'm phenomenally lucky, and and uh, you know, and a lot of it is to do with. You know, I think is to do with how 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 old I am. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I just to do with the fact that I. Oh, I mean, it could get quite boring. This, but you, you know, like you know, I I was able to buy a flat when when I was uh, you know in my in my in my twenties mm. because flats were cheap then. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And and that, and that has basically just allowed me to not be saddled with debt and just basically, I've been allowed to do the things I've wanted to do throughout mm. throughout you know throughout my adult life mm. without without having to you know waste time doing kind of yeah kind of grim, also you, grim tasks you seem to have um done what i think is the, is the great trick to life which is you still have um palpable enthusiasm you know, the same enthusiasm that you probably had when you were 13 you know trying to learn a song or or, or work something out on the keyboard you you've 
it seems to me that you still have that. And a lot of people, when they get to a certain age, they kind of um, they put away the childish things and, <laughs> you know, or they, they feel like they shouldn't be listening to new music or they shouldn't be going out to a gig. They should be, don't dance at the front, stand sensibly at the back, all that kind yeah. of thing. And um, I think the the happiest people I know as I drift into uh, senility are the ones that still have a little bit of that love in them. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, I, I, yes, I'm... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I put you on the spot with what was an entirely horrible question with no room for humility whatsoever, although you did such a good job of injecting no, no. humility into it. I guess I'm just always curious, like, you know, you talk about the, the world being in the state it's in and, and you know, uh, mental health issues and all of that. I just find it... Sometimes when when I think about, you know, myself and my friends who are doing what they always hoped they would do with their their lives, there's still something very comforting in the idea that if I were to go back in time or if you were to go back in time to your 13 year old self and tell the kid version of you what you were doing for a living, they'd be really excited and pleased. Yeah, but I think regardless of what I've ended up doing, I think it's the it's the fact that I, I, it's the making things happen that's mm-hmm. the that's the that remains the you know the exciting thing. It's like you know just just for just just I don't, yeah I don't, there's no other way of putting it. Just yeah. making cool shit happen, and uh, <laughs> I, I I I still get a kind of tremendous buzz about that. It's like okay, what's the next thing? What's the next thing we're gonna do? Mm. And and if there's nothing on the horizon, then make then get something to appear on the horizon. You know, um, yeah. I love that. I feel I feel as if I've become more incoherent know. as the podcast has, has, has gone on. I'm but, the one uh, who's incoherent. <laughs> don't worry, you're very coherent, and it's just really nice. I I, I don't know your 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 passion and enthusiasm for making stuff, like you say, is just so um, it's so refreshing and so nice to hear about. Oh, thank you. Like I say, it's just a, a subject that's that's close to my heart, and I can't help but make the connection when I you know especially with someone like you who's so prolific and got their fingers in so many different pies i just think that you know 13 year old you must be very proud and pleased in summary i i think you you probably just put me in a place where i was forced to consider my life and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and then i and then i started wishing we were talking about something else it's like david frost with tattoos <laughs> Oh, dear, I'll never do that to you again, I promise. Mm. <laughs> well, so uh, away from the music, because you are a man of, of many strings and many bows, uh, what, what, what else have you got going on at the moment? What, what, are, you, what are you keeping yourself busy with? Oh, goodness. Um, what I'm, uh, I've, I've become obsessed with Sudoku. I mean, that's not... Um, <laughs> that's a good that, lockdown strategy. Yeah, it's not, um, you know, obviously it's not, it's, that's not a career move. YouTube channel called Cracking the Cryptic, where they solve a they they solve a Sudoku every day, like a really hard one, mm. and they talk you through the logic. And um, you know, I always quite like puzzles, but it's 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 just made me it's made me go Sudoku nuts. I, I, I watch I watch you know I watch I watch a, a a long video every day, and then I do it and I do a bunch bunch of Sudokus. I mean, just think just think what I could be doing if I wasn't doing Sudoku. That's, um, that's so much better than staring at your phone for six hours a day, which so, is what. Some of um, us do. Yeah, the yeah, thing sure. is, the thing is, the Sudoku is on the phone. <laughs> ah. But it's, isn't it supposed to? Is there any science behind the the theory that it sort of makes your brain um, bigger? Is that true? 
Yes, it's true. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yes, uh, yes, I am. I, I am much cleverer than I was. His head year, just leans to one side ago. now, like like David Niven in that film. <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think what else I'm doing. I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I do. I do like production work for for Lush Cosmetics, which sounds quite weird, mm-hmm. but they they have a record label, uh, an associated record label called ECC, mm-hmm. and they put out um, mainly records uh, by. Kind of a kind of world music folk artists and birdsong albums, but mm-hmm. occasionally, like so, the guy who runs Lush, Mark Constantine, he um, he's been commissioning musicians for the last three or four years to kind of do versions of his favourite songs because he's a complete music nut. Mm. And these songs end up getting put out on, on compilation albums, which are available in Lush stores, and I've absolutely no idea who buys them. But, you know, they're like triple albums of like ones from the 60s, ones from the 70s, ones from the 80s. So we're just doing the 80s one at the moment. So I've just been I've just been working on um, a version of Enter Sandman with Max Tundra. Oh wow! Um, yeah, him he of Warp Records fame, um, and so so that's been a thing I've been doing working on a Cocktail Twins track with uh, Lisa Knapp, a fantastic folk singer. Um, so I'm doing that and producing the next album by Spearmint, '90s guitar indie band Spearmint, who are still going and still great, mm-hmm. and um, and then. Writing in the gaps. Oh, Do, doing writing like, in the gaps. Like you're keeping yourself out of trouble with uh, remarkable aplomb. Well, thank you very much for coming and sharing your phonographic memories with us today. We have loved having you. It's been a real joy, and uh, I hope been you solve those sogokus. I hope you I hope you become the number king. <laughs> thank you for having me. I was a bit nervous, but I'm, I feel fine now. Oh, sorry. I probably didn't help with your nerves there with my aggressive line <laughs> yeah, of questioning. Aggressive one of us, questions. one of us, has to be the bad cop. <laughs> Who it's the been... hell are you? <laughs> it's I'm been so... such a pleasure. Thank you, Rodri. Not at all. Loved it. I'm so pleased I got good cop. <laughs> <laughs> You're always going to be the good cop. You're terrified of authority. That's like the main thing about That's you. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> we better stop before someone says something. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again, Rodri. It's been brilliant speaking to you. Thanks Thank so you. much, Rodri. Really Bye-bye. appreciate it. Bye bye. If you enjoyed this podcast and I'm trusting by virtue of the fact that you've made it all the way to the end that you have, please like the podcast, subscribe to it, write us a review. It really helps us get in front of new eyes and ears. Uh, Or you can just do it the old fashioned way. Tell a friend, tell your mom, tell your family, tell anyone you know who loves music and might enjoy this pod. But if you are telling your mum to tune in next week, then uh, you better warn her there might be some potty mouth language because we have invited the queen of no wave and punk, Lydia Lunch, on the show. Amazing. And when I say amazing, I have to say this is one of my favourite interviews that we've done so far. What a woman. What a set of stories. It is a jaw-dropper. Join us next week for a fantastic edition of What Goes Around with Lydia Lunch. I love doing this podcast with you, but my next one is going to be basically all about me overanalyzing all of your Instagram. <laughs> it's all out there. There's nothing to analyze. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very short podcast.